We got the blueprint how countries work, scientists across the world work together, how government put all the money into this, how the private sector competed with each other but cooperated with each other. If we have the same kind of effort on global warming, on water shortages, on poverty, on inequality, and we can solve all of these problems. Uh, we just showed the way. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest. We're back here with another great conversation and another great guest. And this time we are talking about supply chain management. So before you turn it off, we promise you this is an interesting topic. We're going to make it sexy and interesting for you. And the reason we're talking about it is because it's something a lot of us don't know a lot about. We really don't know much about the supply chain, how it works. But after the pandemic, we all know what it is now because we notice our store shelves are looking a little empty and we're starting to see the media talk about it. We're starting to see Washington pay attention to the supply chain. So we thought it was time to bring this closer to home and have a great guest come on the show. And so we're joined today by Ms. Uh, Professor Yossi Sheffi. He is, a, uh, he is a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, as we all know. And he serves as the director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. And just to give you a little bit more background about Professor Sheffi, uh, he is an expert in systems optimization, risk analysis, and supply chain management, which are the subjects he teaches and researches at MIT. He's the author of many scientific publications and even seven books, and he also led the international expansion of MIT CTL by launching the Supply Chain and Logistics Excellence, which is SCALE, a global network of academic centers of education and research. And lastly, Outside of the university, uh, Professor Sheffi has consulted with governments and leading manufacturing, retail, and even transportation enterprises all over the world. He is also an active entrepreneur, having founded and co-founded five successful companies. And just to last it all, you know, just to, to round it up here, lastly, he uh, has obtained his uh, Bachelor's of Science, it looks like, from Technion in Israel in 1975. And he also, of course, graduated from MIT in 1977 and got his PhD from MIT in 1978. So decorated. He's a absolutely an expert on, on our topic today. So, Professor Sheffi, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So, like I say, we, you know, we're going to talk about the supply chain, something a lot of people before 2020 didn't know much about. And so right now the supply chain is visible in a lot of different ways because we're noticing things. The shelves are empty. We're running, you know, car chips are not available. So the car lots look empty. And, but before 2020, it was sort of the supply chain was really invisible because of a lot of the shipping and transportation takes place over water using huge container ships that most of us don't see when they come into port. And so it really takes thousands or hundreds of thousands of workers to make this entire supply chain function globally and function efficiently. So just to kind of start off here to introduce us to this, explain to us and our listeners how this delicate or an interconnected supply chain system even came to be. And just, you know, as it's constructed, how quickly or not quickly is it able to respond to something like a pandemic uh, when you, and you end up with shortages like we have now? Sure. So let me first start by explaining what a supply chain is. And a supply chain is actually a term that simplifies what is actually a supply network. Because take, for example, an automotive manufacturer, Ford, Toyota, Kia, whatever, Honda, take your pick. They assemble cars, but they don't make everything. Lots of the parts come from suppliers. And then there are tier one supplier. For example, tier one supplier may make carburetor, but this tier one supplier will have another supplier who, as far as the auto manufacturer, is tier two supplier, but it's tier one supplier to the carburetor supplier. And he will make maybe spark lag and some, some other item. That person will also have supplier. Finally, we got supplier, supplier, supplier. You'll get to one of two sources. It's either agriculture, you get to the land, or you get to a mine. Stuff either comes from the mine or comes from the land. If it's food and food-related, it comes from the land, from, uh, from agriculture. If it's item that you can hold in your hand, at the end, 
it comes from a mine. And between the mine and the uh, and the um, and Walmart, say that it's you know on the shelf, there there are hundreds of thousands of companies involved in getting the stuff to the shelf. Now, if you look at one item, even one item will have many, many companies involved. Now, between these companies, and by the way, the material moves not in a straight line. If you think about, let's say, a T-shirt. A T-shirt starts with a cotton field, maybe in Texas, and it goes to um, the the cotton is flown to China, where some textile is being is being made. Then the textile is moved to uh, Bangladesh or uh, or Sri Lanka when the, uh, when they cut and sewing. Meanwhile, another set of supply chain brings zippers and buttons get to that place. Maybe it will end up putting everything together somewhere in South America, and then it gets to uh, to your to your Walmart shelf. There are a lot of people involved in this, including people who drive trucks and run warehouses and uh, going to customs. There are a lot of planners. It's becoming more and more scientific um, function when a lot of computers that uh, synchronize all this, uh, all this movement, a lot of messages come with various forms. It's not quite... Uh, most of them not email, but think about email. Messages come electronic about what we need when it's coming, where it is, how much it's going to cost, give me a discount. I, I asked for four blue ones, I got three yellow ones. What's going on? How do we fix it? All of this is happening in the background all the time. And it happens for tens of millions of items or continuously. Now, when everything works, you don't see it. It's like when you drive on a highway and the pavement is fine, you don't even think about it. Yeah. But if there's a pothole, you think, oh, shit. By the way, that's a technical term at MIT. Um, <laughs> so, oh, God. I mean, this is, look what happened. There's a, you know, this government cannot do anything right. Uh, you pay attention to it only when it, when it doesn't work. Supply chain are the same. It works in the background. When it works, <clears throat> you go to Walmart you buy, <coughs> you buy a T-shirt for nothing and uh, <laughs> for very little money. And you buy it, if you buy it, think about it. All the processes, you buy a T-shirt, $2. How much the, the person in uh, you know, Sri Lanka got for cutting and sewing and all this? Pennies. I mean, this is, there's a lot of problem of social justice along supply chain because many places involve workers who are really not getting paid enough for, for the contribution. But that's, that's a different issue. <laughs> but it absolutely, it absolutely I, I'm just saying because that's one of my research area, but it's a, um, you want to, to create a system where, you know, it's, it's cheap, but because it's cheap, because it's efficient. And it is. It is very efficient right now. In fact, in many ways, too efficient. But it's efficient. And it took years uh, to build. But that's just an idea of what the supply chain is. Mm. We can start talking about why you go to the supermarket where you don't find anything. That's <laughs> <laughs> coming. <laughs> that's right. We'll definitely get there. But you hit on some really great points and love your point about um, talking about how uh, the supply chain really affects social justice and things of that nature. Absolutely. One of the things that I wanted to make sure to hit on because, you know, the pandemic was a wake up call um, for the government in a number of ways, whether it be education, policing, housing, infrastructure and all of that kind of stuff. So, uh, Professor Sheffy, before the pandemic, you know, how would you characterize the strength of the global supply chain? And were there any issues you think that were being ignored? Okay, so uh, when you say ignored, it's as if nobody was doing something or nobody working on them. But let's let's start with the uh, supply chain by and large is very efficient. And it's very efficient, honestly, because of the capitalistic system. Along the supply chain, there's always a buyer and a seller, buyer and a seller, you know, su- supply and customer, supply and customer. 
Every supplier has its own supplier. So their relationship is supply and customer. The nice thing in the capitalistic system about supply and customers is that they get to the right price. I mean, they get to, uh, uh, they negotiate the price and they have incentive. Both of them have incentive to get the price down because every, because even the customer wants to sell it, you know, to its customer. So it's one, it, everybody wants a low price. It became very, very efficient. Uh, there are some, you know, the the, uh, the deregulation in the uh, late 70s, 80 made it more much more efficient. The Toyota manufacturing system, which just in time is part of it, is significantly more efficient. We had a lot of, um, uh, it, it is a very efficient system. In part, over time, we started, it was not enough, so companies started going to find suppliers in low labor cost countries. And this is where two things happen. First of all, a lot of the sustainability problem, global warming problems that we have are because some of these countries, the reason that they are cheap is because they don't enforce environmental laws, not like the United States. Another reason they are cheap, because they don't force labor laws. <laughs> Another reason they are cheap. So it's not that it is not uh, recognized. It's absolutely recognized. And, and today, large companies would not get caught uh, employing child labor or uh, forced labor. Um, there were some really awful cases uh, that came to the fore. Yet, I must admit that the constant pressure of low cost and constant pressure of customers in the U.S. and Europe who will buy something because it's two cents less than the next guy is unrelenting. So uh, you always find companies who are somewhat less scrupulous than others and they will go and uh, and, and, and use this, this supplier. But I must say that more and more you see companies, especially the large one, the one who are uh, on Wall Street and responsible to uh, um, to shareholders, responsible to to, uh, to the public, are really working on it. I mean, and I, I was specifically part of working with Intel when we found out that um, some of the material that was used, some of the aluminum and some of other metals were coming from mines in uh, in Africa and South America that were using basically forced labor. Gangs were, you know, taking people and, and making them work in the mine. You think it's like five, four centuries ago. No, it happened only 10, 15 years ago. I mean, it's not like it happened, you know, in the past. So um, they, they did a huge amount of work and finally got the whole industry, over 400 companies to work together and basically make sure that they don't use it. Intel can guarantee that no metal used in any of its parts is, is coming from uh, any mine that used forced labor. And they were able to put the pressure on certain government to, uh, to stop this practice. It's not, a, it's not eliminated, it still exists, but most of the brand name products that you buy now, you can be absolutely sure. If you buy a, an Apple product, a Dell product, it's not it's not going to have any of these problems today. But of course, still, there are some companies that are better than others. It's, it's everything else in life. <laughs> I think that highlights some of the challenges. Like you say, they're not being ignored, but they are being worked on in real time. Yeah. And there's progress being made. It's not as fast as some people would like. But I absolutely, you know, I, I agree with you. And I, I remember, too, hearing like Nike has come under fire for where oh. some of their products are made. And they got a ton of criticism. And so, not only a ton of criticism. They had about 30% reduction in sales. This, this, got, this got their attention big time. And they that, became, that'll do it. <laughs> they became one of the leaders, actually. Nike became But just to explain to you the level of difficulty. When I work with Intel... We said, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three. The mines are tier 12. So between oh, Intel, wow. does, the mine doesn't sell to Intel. It sells to some middlemen who sells to some middlemen. And by, by the time it goes to the smelters, when all the aluminum is kind of uh, mushed together, you can't, beyond the smelter, you don't know where it came from. So you have to convince the smelters. Even the smelters, they're level six, uh, the 
they don't sell particularly to Intel. They sell to some suppliers. Sell to some suppliers. So Intel cannot, cannot have, even Intel, as big as it is, cannot affect them. But as I said, what Intel did, it organized the entire industry. And uh, the, the force of 400 companies, they were able to go to the, to the smelters, say, you guys must police your own, you know, the sources of where, where you get metals from. And it actually worked. So, but it took incredible effort and incredible amount of money from a company that really cared. I mean, that, that doesn't always happen. So. <laughs> That's right. And I feel like we're, we're going to be talking a little bit more about that as we get into our conversation. What we're going to do, uh, listeners and Professor Sheffley, we're going to take our first break and we're going to get into our second segment when we come back. So listeners, stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So we are continuing our conversation with Professor Yossi Sheffi. And again, he is the director of the MIT Supply Chain Management Program. And so, uh, Professor Sheffi, we talked at length about just the, the global supply chain and what that really means, the players that are involved. And, you know, we talked about some of the issues that were uh, that kind of come up as far as where these products are manufactured. But now we want to focus where these products are going. The, the store shelves and, and who's the end consumer here and how they're being affected because of the pandemic. And in a lot of ways, people have described the pandemic and what's happening as sort of a perfect storm um, for, for supply chain shortages to occur. And some of it is because of the system is very efficient. And the reason for that is the, the supply chain management style that some people call, a lot of people call just in time which means you get just enough product on the shelves right when you need it. And like you say, technology has been extremely helpful in synchronizing all of this. So you get the product exactly when you need it. You don't have extra product just hanging around. Um, And so it works when you have the proper workers and everything's working fine. It's a very efficient system. But when you get a global pandemic and you get things, you know, buying behaviors changing, you get shortages, you get backups, it kind of, you know, it, it does what it does now and there are problems. So and just kind of in your opinion, for this perfect storm for the supply chain shortages we're seeing, what are kind of your major factors that you point to to say this is why this is what the pandemic did and has how it has really challenged the global supply chain? Thank you, Devin. And you will hear from me a different point of view than what you get in the media. And as you know, you, you shouldn't believe to to you know, what you read in the papers. And this is another thing that you should look into. Like the fact that just in time is a problem. It's not. That's, that has really nothing to do with it. Uh, in fact, just, to, just in time is a system that connects the manufacturer to the customer, to the supplier very tightly because they have to deliver just in time. And uh, it actually brings resilience. You can respond very quickly to, us- to usual, I would say, disruption. And we're disrupted all the time. We have hurricanes and floods and fires and strike and all the time. And some big ones, some small ones, nothing as big as the pandemic. And we'll come back to the pandemic. We'll see what is the source of the problem that we have now. But by and large, just in time is a system that brings us high quality and low price. Why high quality? There's always problem problem with uh, um, parts that, that come into a factory for assembly. If you have a large pile, large inventory, and you say, oh, one is defective, it's very easy for the uh, manager along the line to take another one. But if there's only limited amount and very precise amount, the line will be stopped and the problem will have to be fixed, whatever it is. So otherwise, if you don't do it, there's a thing about automotive excellence. There's a whole bunch of cars that will go with a with a defective product, and then you'll have warranty problem, you'll have bad reputation, you'll have to rework these cars. This is what increases the cost. You see, just in time is not a system that was put in to reduce cost. It's a system that was put in 
got a lot of good things and then the cost went down as well. Um, and and uh, you guys look young, but there used to be there, there used to be a time when the United States has a voluntary quarters in Japanese car. They were so good that they were going to decimate the U.S. auto industry. So they put voluntary quarters on Japanese cars because the, the quality was so good compared to the, to the American. Not, not to be fair, manufacturers of all kinds have caught up. Quality is significantly higher because everybody adopted the Toyota manufacturing system, which just in time is, uh, is part of it. Let's talk about the pandemic because all of this works very well, even for reasonably large disruption, but the pandemic is something entirely different. The pandemic started we had it, it, uh, it started when people, people stopped buying. So and the, but the supply the, the supply chain worked very well. I'll give you one example. Think about the food in the United States. From one day to the next, in March 2020, all restaurants were closed, all universities were closed, all industry was closed, and all the stuff that come in, you know, 100-pound sacks on, on, on pallets that go to the suit, these places, nobody was buying. People only wanted the small, you know, uh, half a pound or a pound package that comes with all the ingredients on it and the, and the calories. Well... The people who supply, who supply uh, universities and, in, and industrial parks and, and restaurants did not have the machinery to do it. Yet, and by the way, on top of it, people bought different things. People stopped buying fresh food. They bought a lot more cans and bread and pasta, comfort food. Yet, let's admit it, nobody went hungry. Sometimes you can read in the, in the Wall Street Journal or in the New York Times, in all of this, in the USA Today, There's no there's shortage of eggs. <laughs> What are you talking about? I mean, that's a, that's a shortage was for three days and, and because somebody was late and all this. It, get real. It's, I mean, yeah. it, it's just, but as you know, with the media, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, fear, <laughs> fear sells. So, uh, you know, so of course we had all this, all this crazy headline. It's absolutely not true. Uh, there was no... I would say one thing we had a problem, and this is PPEs, you know, personal protective equipment. Mm -hmm. But this is a government failure. Government used to have, here, just in two minutes, I'll tell you the stories of PPEs. Because Clinton read a book about pandemics and started building a national inventory of PPEs. Bush, who had 9-11, built it even more. Obama let it wither away. He did not replenish it. And Trump probably didn't even know it existed. So it's a, uh, so we got to the pandemic woefully short. Uh, this, is, this is a government failure. It's not, a, you know, no one companies could keep inventory. And by the way, when people talk about keeping inventories, you know, you cannot design. By the way, where are you guys? So I don't know, give you a local country. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in Dallas, Texas. I'm in Dallas, Indiana. In Indiana, okay. Dallas, Texas. You cannot design the transportation system. What's this called? Metro in, in Dallas? What's the, the, um, the transit system? What's it called? Oh. Um, Bus system. Okay. Yeah, it's like the metro. Yeah. It's like a metro. You cannot Dark. design. That's what I'm talking about. You cannot buy enough business for Dart just to serve the day when the Dallas Cowboys are playing. There's not, just not enough. Because there are only, you know, eight times a year or so that the Dallas Cowboys play. You cannot design the system for the absolute peak. Similarly, you cannot design a supply chain for something like what happened now. It's just that it will be so expensive that, and so inefficient that it, it, it's not going to work. But let me explain exactly what happened now. So because there are two stages. During the pandemic... People stopped buying big items, but they bought other things. So people who make semiconductors, automotive companies stopped uh, stop ordering semiconductors. But on the other hand, computer company, camera company, all of these people were at home. They needed Zoom. They needed laptop. They needed camera. They needed microphone. All of them had semiconductors. So 
they, they sign long-term agreement with these companies. Hey, these companies are not ordering. These companies are ordering through the roof. Of course we'll sell them. Well, then things change. You know, in February this year, March this year, when people started getting vaccinated, demand started, started going up. And by the way, if you want this absolute, we have lots of problems, workers' problems, production problems. The absolute underlying problem, unfortunately, is the government, as in many other problems. And this is the government that's voted for, but they don't know what they're doing. So they put the amount of money that goes into the market is unheard of. So what happened, think about everybody during the pandemic, a lot of people were working from home, a lot of people, others didn't pay rent, a lot of people, and, and mostly they couldn't spend. Gym, movie theater, restaurants, all was closed. So if, if the national savings rate is actually going up significantly, but it, it makes sense. People didn't spend money. And then came $2 trillion and more, more trillions. We're just counting in trillions. We stopped counting in billions anymore. So trillions of dollars came, came into the market. The market is flooded with money. So people buy. So two things happen. People want to buy stuff, whatever. And they have a lot of money. So prices so you know, the companies were, were not born yesterday. You want to buy. There's not enough of it. I will charge you more. Yeah, you know, I went to buy a car. Um, when was it? About a month ago. And I run read Consumer Report. They, the Kia Telluride was the car, number one car. Okay, so I went there. I went to buy it. And the salesman tell me, so I drive it a nice car, think about buying. So he tell me, so I said, you probably don't give discounts now because they're not enough. He looks at me and says, what are you talking discounts? It's MSRP plus $4,000. said, what is $4,000 for? He said, that's the, that's the dealer profit. I said, this is outrageous. I'm not going to buy because I'm just, this is, you're gouging. And uh, he said, he just looked at me and said, don't worry about it. We'll sell this car this afternoon. I mean, so, you know, they have the power and, and they use it. Okay. So, but that is what is trying this and a zillion other act like this drive inflation up. You see, the problem is not only uh, shortages, it's prices. I mean, prices are going up. Prices of food are going up. Prices of gas are going up. All the prices are going up. So, and, and I think by now the Federal Reserve stopped saying that it's transitory. It will be only a month or two. We now start realizing that it's not transitory. They made a mistake. And it's, uh, and, and by the way, guys, I should tell you that my fear, and I'm totally apolitical, but <laughs> If anything, come on, I'm living in the People's Republic of Cambridge, so you can, you can uh, uh, imagine my politics. But as a, as, a, as a supply chain professional, if we will do the infrastructure plus the, you know, build bed better, whatever, whatever it's called, flood the market again with money, we will have shortages of high prices as far as the eye can see. I mean, it's just... I, and it's not, a, and I know we need to rebuild the U.S.'s crappy infrastructure. I travel all over the world, and there's no comparison. And I know that there are people who are who are suffering, but I'm and I'm environmentalist and all this. But I said that's not the time to put half a trillion dollar on environmental issues. It's just not the time. It's important. We should do it, but wait a year or two. Don't do it now. So, but for political reason, of course, they do it now. So anyway, I don't know why, how we got into politics, but this is a view. You're right. I mean, you, you hit on so much, and and you, you hit on one of the things that really caught my eye in an article that you were talking about, where you talked about the fact that the government's you know spending really aided in, in the supply chain prices, especially with the stimulus payments, because there was so much discretionary spending, and like you said, suppliers did not have enough on the shelves. And whenever I saw that, I was like, that that's just, it was so incredible because everybody's been talking about how we need to do, like you said, so much more. But you're saying by doing more, it's going to attribute to us being in this problem even more. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Professor Sheffield, because we've talked about it a couple of times on the podcast, is a great resignation and how a lot of you know employers are not having workers. 
Um, is, is this shortage of labor, is this affecting the supply chain at all? Absolutely, yes. It affects if we don't have enough truck drivers, we don't have enough people working in warehouses, we don't have enough people in factories, of, of course. And if you look at the, the, main, the main statistics I always look at is not the unemployment, because unemployment is only for people who look for work. It's people who look for work and don't find work. I'm looking at the labor participation and the rate of labor participation. And this is down. We have a lot of people, you know, in this country, we have almost 40% of the people in working age who are not working. Okay, you can find all kinds of reasons for it. This is actually awful. I mean, I'm look, I'm all for billionaires to pay more and all of this, but we cannot have huge part of the population forget not paying taxes, not working. So not not adding to the you know GDP, not adding to the output of the country, and that's uh, that's that's worrisome because these people will need government help. They'll get used to government help. They're not gonna um, you know work. It's I I wish I had all the solution. I know supply chain. I don't know social science, but it, <laughs> just I'm just pointing at 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 the problem. It's it, it's a problem. We don't have enough workers. And uh, it's, 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 it's very hard one, because we gave all these people all this money. And by the way, I don't know what's going on in, uh, you know, Indiana or, uh, or, or, or Texas, but the Massachusetts government has a lot of money that they didn't even distribute it yet. So there's a whole bunch of money that's still coming. And now they are put money on top of money. And two, one infrastructure money, one this money. And so... How do you solve it? I'll tell you how we solve it. It's also a political statement, but I, I, I'm not saying political. We have to solve immigration. We can solve it with immigration. We can allow, do visas for people to come to work for a year, for two years, whatever, or, or just be more reasonable immigration policy. I don't know. But it's, it's, if Americans are not willing to work, we have to find people who are willing to work. That's all. So it's, that, <laughs> that might get you in trouble in some circles yeah. around the country. Yes, I know it will get me in trouble in a lot of circles who think that everybody's from south of the border is a rapist and, and whatever. Uh, but I mean, just but just that conversation highlights the the how complex it is when you talk about the supply chain and what's really happening. What you hear, like you say, what you're hearing in the media. Is not entirely accurate as far as the, the blame add, kind of. Let me yeah. add one more thing. What is it called in in baseball? Un, uh, uh, f- uh, unforced errors. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of this. We do to ourselves. Let me give you. I have so many examples. Let me give you one. <laughs> you know, the port of LA and Long Beach at the almost half the container, forty some percent of the container that come into the country comes to LA or Long Beach. This is really one port. It's, it's divided to two, but it's really one big port. The Southern California decided pass a law a few years ago because they wanted to clean the air that only, that only trucks that are less than five years old can come into the port. Now, by the way, 20,000 trucks that come into the port every day, many of them multiple times. So they say only trucks that are less than five years old. And, of course, it helped clean the air. What it also did, it drove many small truckers out of business. They couldn't buy a new truck. And now the, even the big companies that operate some of these trucks don't want to buy, don't want to invest in more trucks because California said that in 2030, you can have only electric trucks coming to the port. Now, electric trucks don't exist yet, but they say 2030 only... So... There's less truck to begin with. They are not investing in new trucks. So containers are sitting on the port and there are not enough truckers. There are not enough chassis. There are not enough trailers. There are not, en- not enough drivers. But this is only one small example. So you say, yeah, but it's a good idea to have cleaner air. Yes, it's a good idea. But if the government decides that it won't cleaner air, or not in the government, if the su- people in Southern California want cleaner air, they should be able to pay for it. And to pay for it, they should make sure that the small operators can buy new trucks. So mm-hmm. they can give, but everybody wants to get something for nothing. And it doesn't work. I mean, I, 
if I live in Southern California, I also would like to have clean air. But understand it. Every one of these involve unintended consequences. And you have to think about it and have the money to pay for it. And if, if you don't have the money, you get it. If you don't allocate funds to help, in this case, the small truckers, they go out of business. And you don't have an, <laughs> you don't have the money. <laughs> so there are so many examples like this of crazy rules that are just hitting us. Anyway. You're right, Professor Sheffield. We always say on our podcast, you know, you can't just slap one policy on and say that that's going to be a solution. It's it's one policy on top of another that's probably going to uncover another policy that you've got to work on. And, you, and, you, and it's so interesting because you're making supply chain a topic that we haven't talked about too much before the pandemic seem so interconnected, just like, you know, we're talking about policing, housing, infrastructure, and things of that nature. So we appreciate you bringing a lot of context. But what we're going to do, we're going to take another break, and we're going to get into our third segment, where we're going to move this thing forward. Our third segment is always about trying to lay out a you know a little bit of better vision for where we're going to take it in the future. So listeners, stick with us. Would we'll you be like right to back. contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get into our third segment. Remember, we're joined today by Professor Yossi Sheffi. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at MIT. And like I said before the break, Professor, we're wanting to, you know, kind of take this thing forward a little bit. One of the things I thought about in thinking about all the supply chain uh, issues, you know, you always see this made in America tagline and a lot of different, you know, items. And that kind of makes people feel great. Unfortunately, a lot of things aren't made in America because, as we've talked about, it's cheaper to kind of, you know, do it other places. And, you know, you know it's all about, always about the shareholders and the bottom line. However, with all of these issues we're having, it seems like, you know, we may have a new ball game. You know, my question to you, Professor, do you think that we're going to see, you know, maybe some companies moving, you know, back and doing their manufacturing onshores versus offshores? Do you think that, you know, the supply chain shortage is going to get more companies to start doing that? No. Uh, but, <laughs> but let me, let me explain. <laughs> oh, shut <laughs> Hey, look, on the margin, it will happen. On the margin. But we have, again, uh, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. For example, to build, as we said before, everything starts at the mine, at the earth, you know, stuff. You want a chip for your new F-35, it starts with uh, uh, certain minerals, uh, rare earth minerals that are coming, that are, you know, the building block of cell phones and uh, all the advanced electronics. China supplies 80% of the world of uh, rare earth minerals. But that's not the problem. You know who has as much as China and probably more? The United States. Only our environmental law, and nobody wants it in their backyard, don't allow us to mine them. So, again, we have to decide. It, it, we have to get a balance between, and by the way, this is not only fun to have a service, it's a national security issue. Because if we are not going to get, if we're not going to be able to get the supply of the high-end part, they go into avionics of the latest, uh, you know, uh, weaponry, this is just, you know, not cool. Especially when we talk about China attacking Taiwan and who knows what will happen. Uh, we need our, you know, machinery of war to be, in, in fact, in order to, deter war, our adversaries need to, to think that we are very good because then it's not going to even start. The most dangerous thing is if the Chinese think that they can beat us. Whether they can or not, it doesn't matter. If they think they can beat us, it's dangerous because we're not going to attack them. We're not going to start it, but they may, for all I know. So anyway, uh, again, we go all over the subject. <laughs> so we, we go to a res what's called reshoring, putting stuff on shore. Let me explain. Mainly when we talk about reshoring, it's interesting that both Republican, one of the few subjects that Republican and Democrat agree on is they all hate China. So it's a, but they don't understand supply chains. 
So what happened? They tell company, move your assembly plant out of Shanghai and put it uh, somewhere else. Mostly, by the way, they're not going to move it to Kansas City or Dallas or, 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 or Indianapolis. They're going to move it to Vietnam or Indonesia or Malaysia. Uh, that's, that's first order of business. Second, they'll move just the assembly plant. But what happens in, as I explained about supply chain, there are networks of hundreds of thousands of millions of suppliers, their suppliers, their suppliers, their suppliers in China. They're all good. They're all sophisticated. They know what they're doing. And not only they are less expensive, this is not so much the issue anymore because prices, especially along the uh, eastern coast of China, when you talk about Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, all this area, prices are getting to be pretty high. In fact, you you would not find... Um, Uh, companies who cut and sew uh, apparel in China. Even Chinese companies are now in in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka. They don't do it in China because it's too expensive. These are labor, labor's extensive issues are too expensive in China now. <laughs> Even Chinese companies are doing it out of China. But what is happening in China is a lot of sophisticated products, avionics, machinery, robotics. A, a lot of these products are now... And, and it's not one company, it's one company, it's supplied, it's supplied, it's supplied. Now, once you build it, it's an ecosystem. Think about huge networks or ecosystems. It, you cannot just put it here. You don't have the work, now for sure not, but you don't have the workers and you don't have, even the workers that you have don't have the skills because to me, maybe because of what I do, but they give, the biggest travesty in the United States is not investing enough in education. This is for me a travesty because this is for the ages. It's not, tell you one example, one example. Here we're going all over the place. I'm from Israel. <laughs> I'm originally from Israel. The first prime minister of Israel after Israel got its independence 73 years ago, there was huge uh, waves of immigration from Arab countries into Israel. And they were totally uneducated, totally And the Ben-Gurion, who was the prime minister of Israel at the time, and I remember it as a child, said, you are not going to build houses. They live in tents. All over Israel, there were tents. People live in tents. He said, we're not going to build houses. What we are going to build is schools and teachers. The first generation is gone. We're investing in the second generation. And it, people had demonstration in the streets. I mean, it was not, uh, not simple. He said, Education is where Israel is going to succeed. And today, today Israel has more uh, startup on the New York Stock Exchange than all of Europe combined. I mean, it, so it, it takes time and you get some of the best universities, but you invest in education. And to me, not only the lack of investment in education, even education that exists is just not good enough. I mean, the, the, when you see some of the, you know, teacher unions and the, the fact that you cannot fire bad teachers, you cannot, it's just awful. I mean, and honestly, unfortunately, it hit low-income people the worst because high-income people send their kids to private universities, yes, you know, and, and, and <laughs> the low-income people, the medium, I would say, it's not only low, it's medium, uh, medium income also cannot afford private universities. So medium to low income, it hits the worst. So, To me, if you want real social programs, don't, the number one thing you start with education. Why? Because education will get at the end people out of poverty. It will get people to be able to... So yes, the first generation will suffer because maybe they are not going to have all the goodies that are in the new Biden plan. But if we take a lot of this money and put it And it's not even university. It's not MIT is not an example because MIT is expensive. It's for the elite. But community colleges, make community colleges free. I mean, and make them teach, you know, STEM subject, you know, mathematics, engineering, computer science, things that people can go out and make good money for and grow and, and, and become better. To me, when they, when they took out the... The thing that I really hated in the negotiations between the progressive and the Democrat, God knows, is the fact that they took out the one thing that they said should have been in the program is the free community colleges. Yeah. Because to me, this is a long-term 
It's a long-term mistake. It's not a mistake for now. It's a long-term mistake. The United States had, you know, after World War II, when we had the GI Bill, and lots of people went to university, we had in the 50s and 60s the best time, the best economics in the world. Because we had all these educated people go to the workforce and be able to build America. Well, we don't think what? so. <laughs> anyway. and, and, we, and we just talked about that, you know, the, the, the Build Back Better plan and the free community college, the two years not making it across making the finish line and being taken out. Um, and, that's, and that's part of the issue. And, and I love the fact, I know you, you say we're all over the place, but it just highlights <laughs> all these different things that feed into what we're experiencing right now. And, and, and just to, to wrap up, you know, our segment as far as the future and what's happening, um, you, you sort of alluded to it that this is not going to necessarily go away. Like the Fed has already kind of, said that this, you know, the inflation may not be transitory. This may be a lot, around a lot longer than people think. And the same thing with the supply chain shortages that we're seeing. And so, of course, with the, the media now taking attention and, and paying attention to the supply chain, you're starting to see headlines of like Christmas may be in danger and Christmas may not happen. And you you talked about the, the Long Beach and Los Angeles port or ports or port. <laughs> Um, being backed up. I think as of October 19th, there were 100 ships, you know, waiting and there were about 70 container ships that were waiting to be offloaded. So there's tons of product that's here. <laughs> we just can't get it offloaded quickly enough and get it into the store. So just from your perspective, uh, just to wrap up this this segment here, do you think there's a real possibility that holiday shopping in the U.S. is going to be significantly, you know, disrupted? And, you know, what is the future of, of the supply chain shortages? Do you think this will be what is for a couple of years? Okay. So if I know exactly when the shortages will subside, <laughs> I, would, I would know how to invest in the market and make a killing, of course. If you so, want to break some news now, you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do I know? But, uh, but let's talk about Christmas. Yes, Christmas. But look, in all of this thing, it's not um, yes or no. It's not one zero. What will happen is people who will be flexible, your child really want the Nike the with the blue, you know, the blue color. You buy him the Nike with the, you know, green color. If you can convince your child that that's okay, you'll be okay. The child will keep throwing a tantrum, telling that telling that life is tough. And that's not the toughest thing that they'll see, that they'll, you know, encounter in their life. But, but so be flexible. You'll have to pay more. Order early. Order early. Don't think that Black Friday and all this uh, Cyber Monday, you'll get a lot of deals. You're not going to get a lot of deals because sellers know that they got you. They got you. And uh, the prices are going up. Uh, by the way, prices are going up for two reasons. First of all, because their costs are going up. Cost of transportation. Mm-hmm. All these costs are going up. So their, their costs are going up. So they raise the price. On top of it, some of them realize, well, that's a good opportunity to raise it even more. So it's a, and they do it. Um, so yes, I see that they will have a problematic Christmas issue. By the way, as an aside, and that's the thing that drives me nuts, it will turn, it may turn into a problem for the Biden administration because that, that will start hitting home when little Johnny is not going to have his green sneakers or whatever. Uh, it will be Biden's uh, issue. And and it's not totally crazy because, as I said, one of the main problems is flooding the market with money. And and right now, doing, again, a political statement, but I'm totally apolitical. This is the, the, what drives me nuts. That's the guy that I voted for. So it really <laughs> drives me nuts. I mean, it's a, because they put money in the market like there's no tomorrow. And I'm not talking about deficits. I'm not talking about anything. I'm talking about the shortages and the, what they're doing to the supply chains. And they don't realize they're doing this. And we now see a few commentators starting to realize that putting more money on top of money on top of money is going to get inflation and shortages and demand is going up. And it takes, you know, to build a semiconductor factory takes about... <laughs> I was talking to the CEO of Intel a while ago, but I wrote several books on risk management and supply chain risk and supply chain resilience. And he said, let me tell you what's risk. About every few years, we dig a huge hole in the ground 
and we put $4 billion into it. And we hope that uh, four or five years later, when the factory is done, we'll be able to sell its product. So that's, that's we take risk. I mean, that, because wow. by the time they start it, and by the time they finish it, the technology changes. I mean, it, it's really amazing that, that they're even doing this. But, but they're doing it. And, and sometimes they're more successful than others, but, but they're doing this. So it's a, it takes a long while to build a fabrication factory, which is what makes the, uh, the semiconductor. And meanwhile, you have all this. What happened is shortage beget shortages. You start having a, a, in the port. It's not only, actually, the port, the port of LA in September had the highest number of container containers uh, processed ever, ever. Wow. But they're sitting, they're sitting dockside. They're not moving to that because there's no warehouse, there's no trackers, there's no chassis, there's no trailers, there's no trackers, there's not enough. Just not enough. So it, it, it doesn't even matter if the port can work 24-7. Uh, we have also a long-term problem. The port, the, the U.S. ports are woefully, woefully behind the world. They are not nearly as automated as Singapore and Rotterdam and Shanghai and some of the, and, you know, Antwerp. And not nearly as automated, not nearly as efficient. So we're now having the fruit of not investing. And that's, by the way, a labor problem. It's very hard to get the, uh, the longshoremen to agree to automation because this affects jobs. So, so we're screwed. <laughs> oh no, we can't can't leave with that. <laughs> no, we're not. So, so okay, so let me leave you on on, on an app. Wait, will you have so, one more? So we'll have another. Yeah, we'll have another. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, 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 have have another. Message, we'll be able to. We'll get your uh, lasting thoughts so that you can leave us on a happy note. <laughs> okay. So what we'll do um, we'll take our final break here, and when we come back, we want to make sure that uh, Professor Sheffy gets to leave us on a lasting message of hope. Because uh, we always like to end on some positivity, so we'll make sure to get you there, listeners. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation, and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get back into it here. And we're going to do it a little differently than we normally do, just because Professor Sheffley was kind of setting up his final message as kind of a hopeful message. So we're going to let him pick it up right there. And remember, we've been joined today by Professor Yoshi Sheffley. He is the MIT Director for the Center for Transportation and Logistics. So, Professor Sheffley, go ahead and pick up where you left off. So I just said it's very hard to convince people to do anything about global warming or about or about the pandemic. Not everybody, of course, but you know, 35, 40% of the U.S. population are still unvaccinated. So, okay. Uh, by the way, 70% would not pay 5% more for a sustainable product. This has been established. I mean, you don't, you're not going to read it in the newspaper. It's been established. And by the way, when you try to do carbon tax, like uh, the French did, Paris goes out in flame. You know, the yellow vests and all this, the Australian government fell and the the uh, slogan was X the text. So you cannot convince people. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that everything that they're doing in Glasgow and Paris is going to fail. It's already failing um, because emissions keep going up. <laughs> uh, it's, it's already failing. Government that pay lip service, nobody's doing anything. And companies cannot do anything if the customer is not willing to pay for it. So you need technology. How did we solve the, the pandemic? with technology, the development of the vaccine. And now Merck develops some pill that will help you if you... So we're still developing all kinds of technology. This, we need to develop the technology that will solve global warming. We have the first, the first wave of technology. It's all the renewables, you know, wind, the sun. But it's not enough. It's not enough because they are limited. They take huge land, uh, uh, land area. The, the wind is not always uh, blowing. The sun is not always shining. It's, it's limited. We, furthermore, we have another problem. We have two-thirds of humanity are living on less than $5 a day. Guess what? They want air conditioning. They want car. They want to eat meat. They want a lot of things. So what are we going to tell them? No? I mean, we got it, and you guys stay in, stay in your tents or whatever. It makes no sense. So we need 
there are technology that will take the CO2 and the greenhouse gas already in the air, will suck them out of the air and bury them in the ground. They work in, they work in labs. It's all, and there are a lot of what's called geoengineering uh, techniques, which will actually start cooling the planet, not reducing the rate of warming, but actually cooling the planet. If the gov- and now comes the hopeful message. We got the blueprint how countries work, scientists across the world work together how government put all the money into this, how the private sector competed with each other but cooperated with each other. If we have the same kind of effort on global warming, on water shortages, on poverty, on inequality, and we can solve all of these problems. Uh, we just showed the way. So that's my hopeful message. I hope that <laughs> we will get together and really start tackling the big problems that, uh, that humanity is facing. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, just to make sure as we um, wrap up here, um, we'll go ahead and make sure that we plug uh, Professor Sheffy's book. Uh, his latest book, A Shot in the Arm, recounts the vaccine's world-changing journey from scientific breakthrough to coronavirus antidote to mass vaccination. And like Professor uh, Sheffy was talking about how governments really funded the development, supply chain managers ensured the availability of materials and then ultimately the vaccine was distributed to, you know, kind of stop the pandemic. So uh, we really, really appreciate your insight into this topic, uh, Professor Sheffy. Um, you've been really, really great throughout the conversation, really showing us how supply chain management can feed into a variety of different um, issues that our government is faced with and how our lack of government attention to some of those issues really helps to deepen those things. So I just wanted to say before we you know wrap up, you know, my thanks to you for being on the show. And uh, Devin, you can uh, say your thanks as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I echo everything, you know, Adrian said and, and Professor Sheffy, I appreciate the, the, the bluntness with which you spoke about the supply chain and, and how it's being portrayed in the media, because I think, you know, again, like we said before, before 2020, when the, when the supply chain is working fine and efficiently, it's invisible. Nobody sees it. You, you know, things are just on the store, the, the shelves are stocked, life is good. But when it stops working or there's a blockage or a shortage or something like that, people notice and people get scared. And, you know, I think if you don't get anything else from this episode, let's just understand that there's a difference between, you know, products being short, like electronics and, and computers and things for Christmas and, and water and food in the grocery store and those things. Those things are not what we're talking about. Really, you mentioned it at the very beginning of the show. That's a whole different. That's that's not really the shortage we're talking about. The shortage is products that are being created in other countries, put together here, and are going to make it to the store. That's where the shortages are. So please do not run out buying up toilet paper and water and food, thinking that in December there's not going to be any. As if uh, we could be wrong. Something could happen. No, 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 but as no, of right no, now, no, no. <laughs> that's not the plan. You are not. You are not wrong <laughs> at all. Because we have a case study. During the height of the pandemic, there was no shortage of food. I mean, it's, and that just shows that the supply chain worked wonderfully well. I mean, people did heroic acts, actually. And, but the, the main thing that happened is that people, until January 2020, people used to ask my wife, what's your husband doing at MIT? She said, he's doing research on supply chain management. And people say, what is that? <laughs> Nobody asked, what is that anymore? Oh, that's important. <laughs> when, are gonna, when are we going to have our Christmas gifts? <laughs> that's the questions you're getting. It's funny how things change. And again, I appreciate you just showing us the complexity of it. When you're talking about the supply chain, it's not just, you know, the, getting it here on the shelves. It's all the different partners. It's the different tiers you were talking about. The suppliers all the way down to the bottom. I think you said tier 12 was the bottom. And I mean, that just shows you just how many levels there are to this system and how delicate it sort of is. And um, I appreciate that. And just hopefully, listeners, you got something from it as far as how the supply chain works. Don't freak out. Order early, like Professor Sheffy said. Do your shopping early. Go ahead and get your stuff out the way and be flexible. You may not have as many options this, this holiday Christmas, but you will have things to buy. And they may be a little bit more expensive, but they will be there. Just not as not what we're used to. So, again, uh, we were talking with uh, Professor Yossi Sheffi. He is the 
uh, director of the MIT Supply Chain Management Program. Professor Sheffrey, we appreciate you coming on the show with us. And we're going to take our last break. Listeners, we're going to wrap up the show here. Uh, so stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dado. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and giving a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So as always, we like to leave you with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast. Uh, so first up, we'll be back with you on Saturday, uh, November 13th uh, for week- weekly roundup number 22. Uh, like I said, as we're ending, nearing the end of the season, you know, once we get into the 20s as far as the weekly roundup, I'll let you know we're getting towards the end of this season. But we'll be back to bring you more news and uh, hot topics, quick hits, you name it. We'll be talking about it. That'll be uh, Saturday, November 13th. We'll be right back with you. And then after that, coming up on Tuesday, November 16th, we'll be talking about taxation reform. You may remember we talked about it more on a local and state level with one voice from Mississippi. But this time we're going to take the conversation national and we're going to talk about the federal tax policy and how that is sort of breeding inequality and uh, inequity that we're seeing in our community. So we're going to be talking with... Uh, Dr. William uh, William Gale. He's the co-director of the Tax Policy Center, and it's an awesome, awesome conversation. Just going to go ahead and let you know, not spoiling it, but it is a great conversation that you should tune into. And we're going to be talking to him again. That comes out on Tuesday, November 16th, talking about tax reform. I know it doesn't sound sexy, but I promise me and Adrian will do our best. And it's very, very interesting uh, to listen uh, before we go, we also like to let you know you can help us out, not just by do- uh, by downloading the podcast and listening, but you can actually give us a little bit of money, and they're just going to let you know how you can do that. Absolutely, and it's funny to talk about giving money after talking about taxation. You know, this isn't to tax you, listeners, for uh, listening to us or anything, but it's well, I guess you could say it could be because one of the things we're going to talk about is the way taxation is supposed to, to say if that. we message it properly, <laughs> it's about taxation is, is used to pay for schools and health care and all that kind of stuff. So think of your donation as a way to pay for Devin and I to start an institution, an organization, a movement to champion different things in our communities, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to use your money to actually have something uh, that's going to bring about change in the community. Can't do it without you. So go to our website, com. There's a donate button there. Um, if you're listening to us in the Podbean app, there's also a donate donation button right there as well. When you click on that donation tab, you're going to see that there are monthly levels that you can donate to us, ranging from a dollar all the way up to a hundred dollars a month. And there are gifts that you get. So as you give to us, Dev and I give back to you, and we're going to give back to the community as you give back to us. So please, like I said, go to our website, blackagendapod.com, click the donate tab, and start giving. And then the other thing that we like to do is highlight our charity of the month. And for the month of November, as I said, in honor of uh, November as Diabetes Awareness Month, we chose the American Diabetes Association. Remember, their vision is a life free of diabetes and of its burdens. Their mission is to prevent and cure diabetes and to improve the lives of all people who are affected by it. They are a network of 565,000 volunteers, which includes 20,000 healthcare professionals and administrative staff members. So really awesome organization, Devin, to talk about diabetes that really affects our community. As I said, we're highlighting uh, November's Diabetes Awareness Month. That's right. Make sure you help help them out, but also help us out. We'll all need it. We're going into the Christmas holidays, so this is time for giving, giving back. So we would absolutely appreciate it. Uh, also, before we go, we wanted to let you know you can find us on social media. Um, if you're not following us, you can find us at, at Black Agenda Pod. That's our handle. And we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And again, our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. Um, also, we are on YouTube, so make sure you go there and check us out. We have, uh, I think, over 50 videos of conversations we've had from the past, and even some from this season where we talked about critical race theory. So 
So make sure you check those out. Just go to YouTube, type in the Black Agenda Podcast, and you should find me and Adrian. And so, again, excellent conversation with Professor Yossi Sheffi about the supply chain. We hope you learned something. Again, our goal here is just to educate you on what's happening um, in the world. And you may want to start your Christmas shopping early. That should be your two takeaways uh, for today. And so until uh, the next time here, we'll be back with you on Saturday, weekly roundup number 22. So make sure you tune in for that. So until then, we'll catch you next time. 